The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Many of you know that we've been slowly working through Jack Kornfield's recent book, The Wise Heart, A Guide to the Universal Teachings of Buddhist Psychology. Finished chapter 7 last week. We'll be taking a couple weeks to look at chapter 8. But I thought I might just take a couple minutes and review the different principles from the Buddhist teachings through the first seven chapters. It just gives us a nice lay of the land of this particular path, the spiritual path or path of awakening as it's called in the Buddhist tradition where our spiritual life or our spiritual practice we see about, you know, this, I guess it's a, a metaphor, but the practice of waking up, that's really what spiritual life is about. And not being awake is a kind of death. And the Buddha used this image um, in his teachings. To not be mindful is to be as if already dead. And to be mindful is synonymous with being free. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. But the book begins with this principle about seeing the inner nobility and beauty of all human beings. And, you know, clearly, some of the times we are not beautiful human beings. We're miserable. And, uh, and even, in some, way, in some ways, despicable, right? Anybody here? not cycle through being despicable <laughs> at times. But you can open, we can open to that experience of being bad, being naughty, in a way that's quite beautiful. Or we can care about how miserable our life is in a way that's quite noble and beautiful, right? And so this is what this first principle is pointing to. No matter how miserable or difficult or how limited our experiences at any time, there is a way of relating with wisdom that's really beautiful. You know, the capacity the heart or mind has to acknowledge, oh, this is how it is. It's a mess and it's like this. That is beautiful, even if, in terms of the surface of things, things are really bad or difficult or not the way we'd like them to be. The second chapter, Jack Hornfield writes about this other, the second principle, which is compassion is our deepest nature. It arises from our interconnection with all things. Once we start more and more in life, in our formal practice, and then generally through our days, once we're able to recognize this basic goodness, like, again, that I can relate to this experience, whether it's a good experience or a really miserable experience, I can relate with compassion, with understanding, with forgiveness. And then we realize everybody else has that same capacity. And sometimes it's manifesting and sometimes it's not. And we really get, just like we start to get in our own experience, that when we're disconnected from wisdom, not only do we cycle through difficult moments, 
But then on top of the difficult moments in life, we hate ourselves, or we hate life, or we hate somebody for thinking that they're causing our difficulty. So we layer difficulty, suffering on top of what's already painful. And then we notice that's also true with other people. And it really moves our heart. It moves our heart when we see somebody expressing that inner beauty, like they're in a difficult place, but they have some wisdom, some perspective that allows them to forgive, that allows them to be patient, that allows them to be loving. Or they're in a beautiful place and they're able to be really grateful and joyful in a way that isn't about attachment or I'm bigger than you are, I'm better than you are. So we start to see that capacity in other people and we also see people being cut off from their essential goodness. And so they're just miserable and then layering reactivity on top of being miserable and just sort of that exponential growth of dukkha, of suffering, of stress. That also moves our heart. And this expansion, this sort of movement toward what is ultimately immeasurable, it doesn't have a, it doesn't run out. This, you can call it love or compassion, is about understanding our own life and then recognizing what's ultimately true here as a, a human being is also true out there. And that's the second principle that we talked about back, I'm not sure when, maybe late fall. can't remember when we started the book. And then chapter three, the principle here is when we shift attention from experience to the spacious consciousness that knows, wisdom arises. And this is this basic movement in practice. You know, generally what's so problematic for us because of our habits is our mind, the part of the mind that pays attention has the tendency to fixate on objects. You know, you might, I might have said one thing, you know, in the last 10 minutes that, you know, you didn't like. And you might stop hearing everything else and the mind could fixate on that one statement. Oh, he is such an idiot that, that he said that or something like that. Or, you know, you don't like the sweater. And, you know, we can, our mind does this all the time. We fixate on all kinds of relatively trivial things and then basically experience our whole life through that, that temporary fixation until we have another fixation. Well, you really like this sweater. And so then everything at Common Ground and everything Mark is saying is glorious because it's such a nice sweater or something like that. So when we can lift out of our fixation in any moment, however the mind might be fixated in any moment, if we can, in a sense, you know, I'm speaking figuratively, if we can open up so this inclusive, this deep and broad perspective, space, spacious awareness, which includes the mind that knows, right? When we're fixated, we're fixated on a particular object, something that's being known. It could be a thought that's being known, or emotion, or a sound, or a sight. But when we open up, opening up by definition here means we start to lose the distinction between subject and object. So we're aware of subject and object. We're aware of the knowing and what's being known. 
And it, it really shifts the perspective and allows, as Jack Hornfeld says in this principle, coming out of the Buddhist teachings, it allows wisdom to arise. So that was three. Chapter four, the principle was recognize the mental states that fill consciousness, shift from unhealthy states to healthy ones. So we're looking at the colorings of consciousness. So once we get this shift, dropping the fixation, opening, the more we have moments of opening, spacious, deep, broad, wise perspective, then we start to pick up the particular colorings. In any moment of our life, our mind is seen through a filter. We're experiencing life through some coloring of irritation or some coloring of you know, giddiness or some coloring of whatever. But it affects the reality. It affects how we see or experience this moment. And anybody interested in freedom and interested in things as they are in the truth of things, we would necessarily have to be interested in the colorings of the mind. How we're participating in how it is for us. We're, in a sense, actively participating in our reality by how we're coloring experience. And so it's like owning that responsibility. It's not just the way that it is, but part of waking up to how it is is we're waking up to how we're co-creating how it is. It's not like just being dumped on us. The world experience is being dumped on us. But we're participating in how it is. Chapter 5, our ideas of self are cre created by identification. The less we cling to ideas of self, the freer and happier we will be. Right, so it's just one of the things we notice when we become a good student of the colorings of consciousness, the different filters, we begin to um, be able to very quickly get an intuitive sense of what's at the heart of all unskillful filters or colorings, that isolated sense of self. As soon as there's a distinct permanent sense of self, then we have to protect that self. And that self has opinions. We have to protect the opinions. And not only do we have to protect the self and the opinions of the self, but in a way, we become averse to change. You know, And the trouble is, life is completely grounded in the experience of change. It's very fluid place we live. And so when I have this particular coloring about me and what I am and who I am and what I have and what I want, it's sort of a static view. All of a sudden, all of reality becomes an enemy because all of reality is a very dynamic, fluid place, which is very threatening to a static sense of self. And so that's what Jack Hornfield and the Buddha is pointing to here. Our ideas of self are created by identification. The less we cling to ideas of self, the freer and happier we will be. Or we could say the more we cling to a distinct permanent sense of self, the tighter and heavier things will be. And this is something not to believe in, but you know, as we when we talked about this chapter, 
we actually want to practice this, just to learn to recognize that correlation. When we're strongly clinging to a sense of self, things are heavy. And when we're able to see that filter and not be confused by it, not act it out, then things start to loosen up. It's like even right now, just to play with this point, this principle for a few seconds. I mean, we all have a life, a life situation now, problems. I remember when I was a little boy, Father Brennan was the um, pastor at our Catholic church, and I was a, uh, I was going to say paper boy, I was an ultra boy. <laughs> for this priest and others. And uh, I remember somebody asking him, he was kind of old and a bit of a curmudgeon, and somebody asked him, you know, how are you doing? You know, just a normal greeting. And he, he kind of barked back, you know, well, if you got an hour, I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, and then he said something to the effect of, like, uh, there are a lot of problems. <laughs> And we can, you know, we have that feeling a lot about um, our life from that particular point of view, that self point of view. Because everything is a problem. Even if, like now at Common Ground, we have a beautiful center. It wasn't always this way, as you might imagine. And it took a lot of work by a lot of people for a long time to make it like this. And so you would think that those of us who've been part of the long process of making it like this could finally rest. But no, it's there's a lot to be tight about. You know, like people knocking over their water or, you know, and staining the floor or, you know, any number of things that can make us neurotic about protecting the building. You know, if only people didn't come, <laughs> then it would last longer or something like that. Or, you know, even equally silly thoughts, like if only the winter wasn't like winter, you know, where we have salt and gravel and snow getting tracked into the building and things like that. It's, you know, we have that attitude when we have a strong sense of self, we have that attitude like, you know, if only the world weren't the world, then the self could be safe. The next chapter, chapter six, the principle here is our life has universal and personal nature. Both dimensions must be respected if we are to be happy and free. So once we get a sense of this deep and broad, open perspective, not a center, not seeing the world from a static center, we can get, we can feel the freedom, and then we can want that freedom. It's sort of paradoxical. The self wants to own the freedom of not-self, not self-centeredness. So it gets, even that can get neurotic. So the point here from the Buddhist teachings is to really integrate freedom, we have to be free in this very personal life situation as a parent, as a friend, as a lover, as somebody who needs to feed himself, have a roof over our head, earn a living, all of these very sticky and seemingly personal aspects of life. It's like learning how 
uh, to accept, to in a way ground into these ordinary details of being a human being, and at the same time not losing the vast, open, non-center to our experience. So we can maintain this understanding that things are very fluid and very impersonal, and still take up our personal responsibilities to take care of our body, to take care of our loved ones, to respond, you know, to let the personality manifest itself in all of its glory and imperfection. So this is that integration of the universal, of what Jack Kornfield calls the universal and the personal. And then finally, this last couple of weeks, chapter seven, we talked about how mindful attention to any experience is liberating. Mindfulness brings perspective, balance, and freedom. It's really at the heart of this whole path of awakening. There's a particular mental muscle, I guess we could say. We call it mindfulness. It's really a collection of qualities that is profoundly transforming and surprisingly transforming. It seems almost silly, like if you just said it in a normal crowd of people who hadn't been practicing, that, hey, do you know the most amazing thing in the world is paying attention? <laughs> you know, you'd be laughed at. I mean, in a lot of circles, at least. It's like, oh, I'm already paying attention. And believe me, it isn't amazing. <laughs> you know, because if we ask people, they'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty mindful during the day. People generally think, we think, you know, oh, yeah, I'm pretty mindful during the day. But just because there's consciousness, you know, just because the mind is sensitive to the different sense gates, seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking, doesn't mean we're mindful. Mindfulness is a, a particular aspect to attention. So there's an attention, you know, like, I'm sensitive to seeing. I see the blackness. I see the shape of the Zabutan and the Zafru sitting in front of me. Or I hear my own voice. I hear the blower. I feel my body. I feel the burning sensation of my knee. And I feel the contact of the sits bones and the cushion. I feel the coolness of the air against my cheek. So we can be sensitive. But there's a second or an additional part that makes it a moment of mindfulness which is an awareness that this is how it is now. And the example I like to give, because it's so telling, is how we can drive home along a familiar path, you know, through heavy traffic. And when we get home, it's like we can't remember having been there. We know we got home, because there we are, you know, in our kitchen, cars in the garage or out on the street. But we were completely oblivious. We weren't aware we were driving as we were driving home. But clearly, we were seeing the traffic, and we were turning this way and that way and putting the brake on at the appropriate times. But there wasn't a sense of, oh, this is how it is now. Seeing is like this. The touch of the steering wheel is like this. You know, the thought, I should slow down or I need to speed up, is like this. There's no awareness. There's no wisdom awareness that recognizes this is the present moment. I mean, even that, it's a little troublesome to say that. 
that we need to be aware of the present moment. But it's a very distinct wisdom happening when we're mindful. It's like another another dimension arises in our experience. We're living a two-dimensional life, just sort of acting out habit energy, sensitive, of course, but not missing a dimension. And then because of a good habit or because we've been training or somebody reminds us, all of a sudden this other dimension comes in. And we're aware that this is how it is now. So that was really uh, from chapter 7. And chapter 8 is about mindfulness of the body. And the principle here is mindfulness of the body allows us to live fully. It brings healing, wisdom, and freedom. One of the great uh, meditation masters of the last century, Ajahn Man, one of the teachers of Ajahn Chah and many other great Thai meditation masters that have had quite an influence on the Buddhism coming to the West and a place like Common Ground as well. He said, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, by the mind, the wonders of the world will become clear. And he's really paralleling something the Buddha said in one of his teachings when late at night, at least as the story goes, a celestial being came down from one of the angelic or celestial realms to ask the Buddha a question. And he explained that in a previous life, he had been a great celestial being that was able to, one step was as long as he said, as the East Coast or as the uh, Atlantic Coast here in the States to Europe. So it's the step across the ocean. And for 100 years straight, except for sleeping and eating and those sorts of things, he did nothing but search for the end of the world, the end of suffering. And he asked the Buddha, is it possible, Venerable One, by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos, the world, where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear? Is there somewhere to go where I can be free of this world? And the Buddha says two things. First, he says to him, no, you can't get to the end of the world. You can't get to freedom by traveling. It's not a place like heaven. It's not about getting to heaven or getting to some place, some utopian place where things are perfect. That's not the answer. You'll never find the answer by trying to get someplace. No matter how skilled you are at traveling, like as a celestial being, you know, we can probably travel 50 miles in a day if we're lucky, you know. Even if you had uh, amazing powers, you couldn't do it. And then he says, but I'll tell you another thing. If you don't get beyond this world of up and down, good and bad, you're never going to have the happiness you truly desire. You're never going to be free. So you need to find the end of the world, but you're not going to find it by traveling. And then the Buddha says, 
See, what does he say? I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering and stress without reaching the end of the cosmos. Yet it is just within this fathom-long body, with its perception and intellect, that I declare that there is the cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the cessation of the cosmos, and the path leading to the cessation of the cosmos. So the Buddha is talking about a spiritual transformation that isn't about us getting someplace. It's a spiritual freedom, transformation that leads to a profound freedom or ease. And it's all about understanding this experience here, which is a relief in a way, right? Because basically saying, you have the equipment right here. You have everything you need right now, right here, to realize what you need to realize in order to be truly happy, full of love, full of freedom. And it doesn't matter. He's also saying, basically, it doesn't matter how it is right now for any one of us. That this is the moment, this is the experience, this embodied experience. And this is really useful because, of course, one of the things that's so clear to us often, especially in the beginning when we sit down, you know, the teacher or the book tells us, yes, sit down, like in many of the discourses the Buddha said, uh, the, in, the, the Buddha gave, he said, find a big tree, sit down at the root of that tree, you know, because it would give you shelter, cross your legs. Establish mindfulness in front of you, in, in here, in the moment. Oh, it's like this. Over and over again, he'd give that instruction. And so, right here in this experience is the world, the beginning, and the end of the world. You know, and this world, you know, this ordinary world is a struggle. Even when things are going well for us, it's stressful because we don't know how long the good stuff is going to last. So even if we are healthy or we have enough money or people love us, we all know that that, whatever that is, that it's insecure, that it won't last forever, right? We can't take anything with us and we know how it all, where it all goes. In this chapter, Jack, uh, Jack Hornfield um, quotes Ajahn Chah, one of his important teachers, he says, Ajahn Chah, his teacher said, we only rent this house, he's talking about the body. If, we belong, it, if it belonged to us, we could tell it not to get sick, not to grow old, but it takes no notice of these wishes. With wisdom, if you live, that's good. And when you have to die, that's fine too. If the doctors told me I have cancer and I was going to die in a few months, I'd remind the doctors, watch out because death is coming to get you too. It's just a, just a question of who goes first. And so in the next couple of weeks, as we take the invitation to be mindful of the body, this embodied experience, one of the ways to get to know how we're relating, how we're understanding the body, is to be especially interested in how we relate to pain, how we relate to sickness, how we relate to sensual pleasure, uh, pleasure, like slipping into a nice hot bath or getting a nice massage or 
swallowing delicious food. How do we relate when things are pleasant? How do we relate when things in the body are unpleasant? How do we relate to thoughts of death and sickness and loss? You know, how do we relate when we see somebody um, with a diseased face or uh, in really bad shape one way or another? You know, that, that feeling, even though we know better, we know we shouldn't, it's like a repulsion can come up. And it's not so much, you know, that the, that particular image is disturbing, but on some deeper level, it reminds us of our own vulnerability to change. So the real practice for us is to begin to appreciate that whether we know it or not, we have this maybe primal and primary relationship with the body. And it's really important that we acknowledge this relationship. And in a way, every other relationship we have in the world with our friends, our lovers, our family, with our, the objects of our life, like our car and our clothes, in a way, they're all somehow related to the relationship we have with the body. Like whatever skill we have with our body, the relationship with our body, that skill will manifest other places. All of the denial, you know, we basically have two common approaches to the body. One is denial. Like, I don't want to have, I don't want to, I don't mind having a body, I just don't want to be in the body. I just don't want to be aware of it. It's like that line from Woody Allen where he said, uh, I don't mind death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. We can say the same thing about the body. Like, I don't mind having a body, I just don't want to be in it, be aware of it. It's like, you just do your thing, and I'll do my thing. And uh, let's try not to bump into each other too often. You know, and that's what sickness does. It's sort of all of a sudden, like it or not, we bump into the experience of the body. We were on cruise control, and we had the luxury of being oblivious, and all the knee hurts, or now the lungs are congested, or now something arises for us. So instead of waiting until we get surprised or knocked over by a relationship, we can consciously, intentionally cultivate this kind of intimacy with the body. And I'm not kidding. Like, we wake up in the morning. The first thing we should do, instead of, if you're sleeping with somebody, greeting your lover, greet your body. You know, hey, how are you? <laughs> you know? yeah, we're in it together today again, you know. And, to, and just to sort of make that, have that resolve in the mind, whatever twists and turns the day may bring, it's my intention to be awake, to be aware that we're living, I'm living in this embodied, in this embodied way. I'm willing to be an embodied creature. You know, we have this body, the mind and the body for at least the length of this lifetime, have gotten linked up. And the more we start to pay attention to this relationship, we realize that any disconnecting from the body is an act of violence. It's, it is dukkha. It's stressful to be not aware of the body. It takes 
mental effort or mental constriction to disconnect. At first, it's going to feel like a lot of work to keep coming back to the body because it's not our habit. Our habit is more to be distracted or disconnected. But the more we get some momentum being in the body, we'll start to catch how stressful it is. Like so much of that body tension that we feel that makes us not want to be in the body is the result of having disconnected from the body. It's like that numbness, that sort of not wanting to feel, is a kind of tension in the body, a chronic tension, that we then begin to feel as just unpleasant sensation, like hardness and tightness, because we've been practicing that denial or distraction for so long. So that's one half of the way we deal with the body. The other half of the way we deal with the body is as if it's going to really deliver happiness. You know, and so it's like our princess, our precious, you know, from the movie The Lord of the Rings, you know, that kind of obsessive devotion to the body, willing to feed it anything, you know, just to give it any sense treat, you know. Uh, the clothes we buy, the food we consume, all of these sort of sensual objects that we're attracted to. It's like there's this ferocious beast that's hungry. And we get a little respite from the ferociousness, from the meanness of the beast when we throw something at it and give it some food. It's like its meanness, its tightness, its beastliness is sort of temporarily quieted when it can indulge in some kind of sense experience. So our whole life we're enslaved to giving the body, the sensitivity of the body, the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, giving it another experience. You know, sexual craving is tied up, all the stuff around food, all a lot of the stuff around possessions. This is the whole second half of our relationship with the body. Both, in a way, both styles or both ways of um, being in the body, being with the body, is a kind of slavery. Whether we're enslaved by our denial and not wanting to be embodied, not wanting to feel, be aware of the body, or enslaved by uh, needing, feeling obliged to feed the sensitivity of the body. Give it a, a pleasant visual experience or a pleasant auditory experience. I mean, how much money have we all together in this room spent on music, spent on videos, spent on artwork, just to entertain the, the sort of that sort of uh, central experience, the feeding the beast. So we can, first of all, first and foremost, we need to get uh, more clear about these habits of feeding the beast and running from the beast and getting a sense of how stressful it is and then learning an alternative, which is to relax with awareness in the experience of the body, of the beast. So whether we're feeling that numbness from having been running from it for so long, or we feel the wild desires, you know, like we're sitting still and the body wants to move, the beast wants to move, 
or we're walking and the beast wants to sit down, or we're sitting and the beast wants to eat, or wants to see, wants to look around. And so there's part of the practice that's really taming the beast. But the other half of practice is really to um, like love the beast. You know, that denial, like not wanting to be in the body, there's a certain fear. So part of it is just like willing to feel what it's like, making peace with the numbness, with the hardness, with the unpleasant sensations of the body. This is why practice is so challenging most of the time for most people. The Buddha said once that there are four types of people. People whose practice progresses very quickly and is very pleasant. You can probably guess there aren't too many of those people. Then there are people whose practice progresses very quickly but is very painful. And then there's people whose practice progresses very slowly but it's pleasant. And then there's the majority of us where the practice progresses slowly and it's unpleasant. I'm guessing, but my guess is this is the majority, or at least the bulk of people. So a lot of the the difficulty comes in the transformation of our relationship to the body, to physicality, from these bad habits of just being enslaved by desire and keep the need to keep feeding the system with sense experiences that are pleasant. And when we're exhausted by that, we just want out. So what we, we create mental worlds that we inhabit, don't we? We fantasize and, and we get a temporary, temporary respite from the beast because we're lost in our thoughts. And as soon as our thought, our fantasy starts to disintegrate, we get desperate for another fantasy because we don't want to have to come back to the tightness and the meanness of the beast. And this is really a description of dukkha, of suffering, of stress in life. So we'll take at least one more week, and next week I'll talk more specifically about some of the uh, instructions or uh, specific meditations the Buddha had for mindfulness of the body. He talked quite a bit about mindfulness of the body, but we have 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people what you've learned already in your practice, being mindful of the body, what's been challenging, questions about the talk, or anything that seems relevant to practice. What comes to mind? Yeah, Tom. Um, it was interesting that one of the started with was about the, the cycle of being despicable, or you know, having those moments, because... <clears throat> There's times when I still occasionally find a space between, you know, the person I would like to be and the person I seem to be. And uh, this one particular moment, I won't, you know, go into the tragic and colorful details, but it was good. I was, I was online. I verbally kind of pressed somebody in. It was this one of those moments where it's like, oh, I could have just remembered <laughs> to be equanimous. That, but I, um, I can be sort of intense. I'm kind of type A once in a while, more often than I like. I, in this case, you know, I press somebody, and I and it was like one of those moments that I got to thinking about that. I mean, you know, I learned from. You know, I've learned you just for sure say you're sorry, 
suck it up, admit to it, don't, you know. But there's still this, this uh, big chunk of, like, uh, forgiveness. And I forgive myself for doing that. I hope that the person forgives me for being such a jerk. And, uh, and I, I was thinking about that, and you haven't mentioned it just tonight, the, the word forgive. And I don't, I don't recall hearing the forgiveness. That seems, sort of seems to be part of the structure I came up with, the Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, bad, there's forgiveness, and, and that's, that's still in my, in my being, you know, I think it's still part of a, a lot of people. But I guess I'm uh, wondering, what do you have to say about that, that moment where it's like, all right, if I would have been more mindful, but I wasn't, if I was yeah. more Buddha-like, but I wasn't, you know, you know, that, that dynamic. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question, and you know the the interesting thing about uh, this path of awareness is that all of these concepts we have, like now just taking the wholesome concepts like forgiveness and gratitude and patience and love and kindness, we need to. It's it's useful to have the conceptual terms, you know, to have the word forgiveness. But we want to understand it as an actual movement in the mind. And the thing about what is forgiveness? I mean, that's basically what you're asking. And like when we're, in your case, you know, there's this moment of having just acted out maybe some aversion. And then if it's actual aversion you acted out, some kind of hatred, then by definition it's unskillful. The, the tightness, the the result of that unskillfulness is right there in the mind and body, right then, as tension, as constriction. And so the way forgiveness manifests is it's no different than the next moment being a moment of mindfulness. Because to understand that, oh, I acted out, you know, I got angry, got impatient, I said something that was inappropriate, now there's this effect in my heart and perhaps in this other person's mind and heart. And now there's another moment arising. And in this moment, I can forgive, which means instead of reacting to the pain I feel, like normally when I'm not being wise, that yucky feeling have after just having acted out, I, w- I want to rationalize it. Like I blame this person for that yucky feeling. But when there's more clarity, we realize what happened. And then we've got this possibility where I can just be mindful of that yucky feeling. So I'm forgiving myself, meaning I'm telling myself I don't need to create or construct a story about why I feel this way or why it's this person's fault or blame anybody, me or that other person. Instead, I can just be mindful of the yucky feeling that's left over from having just acted out a moment ago. Now that's what we call a, a moment of forgiveness, but it's actually just a moment of being willing to be open to, to the residual pain that's there because we acted out of some negative intention like anger or impatience. So that's so cool to see that mindfulness sometimes looks like forgiveness, sometimes a moment of mindfulness looks like gratitude. Sometimes mindfulness has the flavor of compassion or kindness. 
Sometimes it has the strong flavor of simplicity. Basically, moments of mindfulness, depending on the particular circumstances, is going to look like all wholesome qualities of mind. Because you could check this out for yourself. Can you be skillful without being mindful? Can you be truly skillful, completely wholesome in a moment, without being fully present in a relaxed way? So forgiveness requires that full and complete presence with the feeling of having blown it and then forgiving yourself. Or in case of forgiving somebody else, we're present with the residual feeling of resentment and anger toward that person. And like instead of proliferating around all the ideas I have about why that person's wrong or bad, instead I'm just going to feel it. That's what the forgiveness is. I'm not going to pick up the story that that person's bad anymore. I'm tired of it. So I'm going to forgive him. But what we're really doing is we're willing just to feel what's left over, you know, what's alive in the heart. Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah. Yes, I don't know your name. Uh, my name is Jen. I am new to this community and to mindfulness meditation in general. And I have a question about one of the points that you brought up in your talk about the two approaches to feeling that we're engaging with our body. There was the approach of denial or escapism, and then the approach of um, sort of taming the beast, as you put it. And I'm wondering if there is any of anything in the practices that the Buddha suggests or in teaching around celebration of the body? Well, I think that's a really good question. And uh, I mean, the, the one simple answer to that is when we're celebrating the body, you know, you're in, you're in your little garden of Eden with your favorite friend, and it's a beautiful summer day, and, you know, let's say you like lakes, and there's a nice lake, swimming lake, and you got good food, and you have a free afternoon, and the sun is just right, and there's a perfect breeze. And the question is, how do we practice in that situation when the conditions are very pleasant? And I think what the Buddha, the way the Buddha would answer that question, he, he would say, be really mindful. And being mindful means that when things are pleasant, we're really aware that it's pleasant. But we're not letting that awareness of pleasantness leak into any kind of construction in the mind where uh, we're, the mind is constructing a sense of dependency on the pleasantness. Because that's extra. And it actually keeps, it prevents a more full experience of that pleasant, that pleasantness. A lot of times, the reason we construct ideas around our pleasant experiences is on some unconscious level, we know that they're fragile. Like that summer afternoon is going to end. And then we'll have. But it's much better to appreciate as we're enjoying, as we're relaxing and being mindful. That, that means that we have the perspective that this is a transitory event. It will be pleasant and then it will change. But that doesn't take away it actually the poignancy of the the impermanence of that event or that experience actually 
can highlight the beauty of it. You know, the fact that we're having a nice evening together, it's strengthened. The, the, the pleasantness or the beauty of it is strengthened by the fact that in seven minutes it's going to be over, you know? And that, you know, if this is going to last forever, <laughs> it'd probably become torturous, you know? And we check out because, oh, God, I could always check in later, you know? We just sort of space out. But it's precisely because things are fragile and we don't know how long they're going to last. So I think that's, that's how the Buddha would talk about a skillful way of celebrating the body or celebrating life is to appreciate the transitoriness of sense experience. Not to be against sense experience or in denial of sense experience, but just uh, appreciating it for what it is. It's a transitory experience. Sometimes it's really pleasant. Sometimes it's unpleasant. And there's no reason to be afraid of the pleasant experience. The only thing we should be afraid of, in a sense, is unconsciously cultivating a dependency on the pleasantness of an experience that we're not in control of, that we can't make last. That involves also, you know, pleasant friendships. Like we should appreciate the transitoriness of our friendships too. We don't know how long they're going to last. That doesn't make it worse. It's just the truth, you know. So some people don't like to hear that because they think it's sort of a denial of life or a sort of a rejection of the world. It's not. It's, it's basically learning how to appreciate the world by the mind, the understanding, being in alignment with the way it is. And uh, understanding that any kind of dependency on something that's fluid and transitory, it's, it's stressful. The dependency is stressful. The pleasant experience in and of itself isn't stressful. It's pleasant. And, and sometimes really beautiful. Thanks for the good question. Maybe time for one or two more thoughts? Yeah, Jeff. I'm wondering, like, if this kind of thing this last week, my baby died. And I was thinking about it. First of all, like, I have a lot of gratitude towards the Dharma. It helped me be present throughout her short life. And, you know, like, oh, this about an hour long life. It's like a whole life, you know, and especially being there. But the, what I was thinking about was this environment. When she died, it was like this important thing for us to like have her like on our chest, you know, it was you know, like naked chest and whatnot. And I was like, well, I can't. It was kind of fit into like my scheme of principles of like clinging or attachment or avoidance or pleasure or not. It just wasn't fitting into like all of that. Was it a beautiful moment? And it's, well, thanks first just for sharing that, just kind of grounding the whole discussion tonight in, in very real things that happen in life. But, you know, one of the things about that experience of having, you know, a newborn baby and the, uh, just the preciousness of that, and then on top of that, knowing, understanding that she, was it a she? Yeah, was dying. Like uh, that, like 
the way the way to be intimate is so much a matter of the moment like it's a real creative response so that you know the instinct or intuition to to be naked or to hold close you know it's like it's not about it, it's really about like how to show up and how we can show up in any moment especially you know such a an amazing and tragic moment like that you know we could never plan or figure that out or get somebody else's advice you know it just kind of happens because there's some deep wisdom that just knows that denial is not the way and control is not the way and the only way that makes sense that's acceptable is to completely show up and so you know that's that sort of nakedness that kind of rawness like to meet the intensity with that direct raw experience now in hindsight makes a lot of sense to me and maybe to you too yeah well, thanks for sharing that Jeff maybe it's a good place to to leave the conversation tonight so let's just take a moment we can bring their child to mind one of the things we do sometimes uh, tradition in Theravada Buddhism is we reflect on all the goodness in our lives all the acts of generosity the moments of being patient acts of kindness and we can happily offer this these blessings this goodness for the benefit of other beings we can happily share the blessings of our life with Jeff's daughter and with all beings all of our loved ones living and those that have passed away may the goodness of our lives be a cause for happiness support for all beings living beings and those that have passed on to whatever comes next may our lives be causes for peace and freedom from suffering and thanks everyone for coming tonight really nice to be here together thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate